Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you believe humans will live on Mars one day? As commercial space companies continue to work on rockets that will bring humans to the red planet, making the trip responsibly is just as important. Coming up, we'll talk with NASA's former planetary protection officer about exploring the solar system without endangering Earth or distant planets. There are thousands of pieces of human-made space debris in Earth's orbit. Will this cause a problem as more and more companies look to put up their own satellites? We'll also talk with the principal engineer in space systems for United Technologies Corporation here in Connecticut about the technology they're creating to aid spaceflight, including how they factor in the question of space debris. First, did you watch the Falcon Heavy, the most powerful rocket that exists today, take off from Cape Canaveral earlier this month? It's made by SpaceX, the commercial spaceflight company run by Elon Musk. If the rocket's launch wasn't spectacular enough, the sight of two side boosters returning to Earth simultaneously was awesome as well. Now, do you think the commercial spaceflight industry has made space exploration more exciting than any government could? Some see benefits to private investment in space, but what are the drawbacks? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, to tell us more about Falcon Heavy and SpaceX's aspirations, on the phone with us now is Marina Corrin, science reporter at The Atlantic. Marina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I understand you were at the SpaceX Falcon Heavy launch. Can you describe what it was like to, to see that rocket lift off? I was. Yeah, so it was, it was pretty wild. Um, all of the press was kind of sequestered at the press site, which was about three miles away from the actual launch pad, which sounds like quite a distance, but that's as, uh, as close as people were going to be able to, to get. And so, you know, there was a countdown in my ear, and I was watching this rocket across the water. And when it lifts off, you see it happening before you hear it, because it takes some time for the sound to travel. And then it just sounds like this thunderous roar. But what was even louder was those two side boosters returning back to Earth to land on uh, matching launch pads. And they came back with two sonic booms, which was Pretty, pretty wild to hear. <laughs> we actually have a clip of that. And of course, it's not going to sound like as, like you, as you were there, but let's hear a little bit of those uh, side boosters coming back to, to Earth. Double sonic booms. Now, Marina, also uh, the payload, the payload rather, aboard the, the Falcon Heavy rocket is just as memorable. That's because uh, SpaceX CEO Elon Musk chose to have this rocket carry a red Tesla convertible into space, uh, currently floating towards the asteroid belt. Uh, here's uh, Musk explaining why he chose to, to launch this sports car into space and leave it there. I mean, it's kind of silly and fun, but, you know, silly fun things are important. And <laughs> normally... For a new rocket, you know, they'd launch like a block of concrete or something like that. I mean, that's so boring. <laughs> and uh, I think that's just the imagery of it is something that's going to get people excited around the world. 
So uh, walk us through uh, this whole process of, of getting Falcon Heavy uh, to launch successfully and then the idea to, to, to launch a Tesla convertible into space, Marina. Right. So Elon Musk first unveiled his designs for the Falcon Heavy in 2011, uh, and he did it in this tiny, poorly lit conference room in Washington, D.C., with just like this little model rocket of the Falcon Heavy uh, behind it. And many people thought he was a little bit crazy um, because the U.S. has not had these like heavy launch vehicles lifting off from American soil since, um, you know, the days of Apollo, since the space shuttle program. And here was this, you know, quirky tech billionaire coming around and saying, I'm going to build a giant rocket. Um, And he said back then that it would launch in 2013, but it turned out to be a lot more difficult to develop um, this 27-engine rocket. So it took until this February to actually get this thing off the ground. So Musk has always said that it's a lot, it's been a lot harder for them to develop than than he thought. Um, And because it's been so difficult, he wasn't even sure that it would work. And that may be part of the reason that he decided to put, you know, his flashy Tesla convertible on there, because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice little show of cross promotion, you know, a a little, um, ad for his other company, Tesla. But it's also silly in that, you know, if if the launch failed, it wasn't that much it wasn't that big a deal because the payload was not anything serious, not anything sentimental. You know, they could just make more Teslas. This is a two hundred thousand dollar car, right? I think so. I'd have to check. It was a 2008 model. I'm not sure how the pricing has changed. Oh, so it was a little outdated, but something most of us can't afford. Uh, But he was able to launch that into space. Uh, You mentioned uh, back when he came up with uh, this idea to design the Falcon Heavy rocket, a lot of people uh, didn't think that it was possible. How momentous is this for this rocket to not only launch successfully, but what does this mean in terms of of future aspirations by SpaceX and the way that they, um, the NASA contracts out? to this company? Yeah, it was definitely a history-making launch. Um, like when the space shuttle uh, was launching and um, when that program ended in 2011, that's not that long ago. And even then, the idea that a commercial company would get really good at launching small rockets like the Falcon 9 and big rockets like the Falcon Heavy into orbit was pretty unfathomable. I mean, this like rocket launches, this stuff is the business of governments and nations. Um, and so over the last few years, in a very short amount of time, Elon Musk has kind of shattered that idea and um, launches by Falcon 9 rockets, which are his you know, smaller rockets, are pretty routine. Um, SpaceX has spent a couple of years now sending commercial satellites, uh, national security missions, even cargo to the International Space Station. Um, so they're getting pretty good at this, and NASA contracts out to them to get some of their supplies up to the space station. So they're becoming a, a big player and uh, in the spaceflight industry in a way that uh, commercial companies have never done before. This is where we live. On the phone with me, Marina Corrin, science reporter at The Atlantic. We're talking about the successful uh, launch of the Falcon Heavy by SpaceX earlier this month. Now, did you watch that launch, uh, whether uh, uh, on the stream or in news accounts later? What did you think about uh, this moment uh, in uh, space exploration and what it means uh, for the future? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Now, when uh, Elon Musk, uh, Marina, thought to launch this Tesla into space. Oh, 
where was he was he thinking that it was just going to orbit indefinitely or was it originally something an idea that he wanted to have it go to Mars this is something that he hopes to do one day with his rockets right yes so, so we all know that Elon Musk is very into Mars and I've I've heard people joke that maybe he is originally from Mars and all he wants to do is just get back home which I think is pretty funny uh, but so he he had before the launch he was saying that he was sending the Tesla to Mars. But what he meant by that was that he wanted to put the car into an orbit uh, between Earth and Mars, but an orbit that's elliptical and goes around the Sun. So right now the Tesla is in orbit with everything else, all the planets, comets, asteroids. They're like that just orbit steadily around the Sun. And a day after the launch, it. Elon said that the Tesla was moving toward the asteroid belt, so it seems to have kind of overshot its orbit with, um, and gone to the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. But it later turned out that that was not quite correct, and uh, the Tesla is not going to go quite as far out as that. But it is going to come close to Mars at some points in its orbit and then come close to Earth, um, and it could remain in space for hundreds of millions of years. Uh, you were talking about um, commercial space flight and uh, the the advances there. When we were talking about those side boosters that were able to land after the launch simultaneously, how will that kind of uh, advancement help maybe lower the costs of space flights in the future? Right, right. So that, I mean, I highly recommend anyone who's listening to just check out the video, those two side boosters touching down um, in near unison, because it's it's just pretty amazing to see. Um, the, the thing that SpaceX is really good at is reusability. So those two side boosters that returned uh, after the Falcon Heavy launch had flown before. And when you can reuse parts of a rocket, any part of a rocket in multiple launches, that's going to lower the cost of your launch every time. And so that's what SpaceX is trying to do. They're trying to make orbital launches cheaper by reusing most of their rocket hardware. Um, and that's that's new for the industry. Uh, NASA is currently building its own rocket that's going to be um, much more powerful than the Falcon Heavy. But that is an expendable rocket. And that's going to cost about a billion dollars per launch. And SpaceX says that you know Falcon Heavy launches are going to cost $90 million per launch. And um, that's a big difference. And a billion per launch is, is quite the amount for something you're only going to use once. So you know, SpaceX and commercial uh, companies are moving in one direction toward reusability, and NASA kind of is not. And many people say that's a bit of a problem. Uh, Marina, when we were talking about the the, the Tesla being launched into space, uh, we heard a, a clip from Elon Musk saying that traditionally uh, concrete is used, um, and he wanted to do something a little uh, more exciting and not boring. Uh, but could there have been something else, some other uh, payload that could have been more useful to send up there? Uh, there could, and after the launch um, actually worked, some people were saying, well, okay, if it's, you know, this this thing actually happened and now there is a payload um, in space, maybe we could have put some kind of scientific instrument or experiment on there, um, which is an interesting point. But again, I, I think that SpaceX didn't really think that far ahead um, in that they really were not sure uh, whether this launch would actually work. Like in the even an hour before the rocket took off, there was some uncertainty about 
it, it really was a toss-up whether this thing was going to go to space or completely go up in flames. So I think that SpaceX didn't want to put anything of too much value on there. So that that would look worse if it blew up than, you know, if a car blows up. On the phone with us, science reporter for the Atlantic, Marina Corrin, as we talk again about this historic moment in the future of spaceflight. Again, earlier this month, commercial space company SpaceX successfully launched its Falcon Heavy rocket at the first step in the company's goal to carry humans to Mars one day. In a move that only SpaceX CEO Elon Musk could think of, the rocket carried a Tesla convertible into orbit. That's right, a very expensive car is floating around in space right now, which brings us to this question, is this Tesla now just space junk? Our next guest can help us answer that question. Dr. Lisa Ruth Rand is a postdoctoral fellow at University of Wisconsin-Madison, a historian of science, technology, and the environment. She joins us from the studios uh, there at uh, uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, Lisa Ruth, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. So we had a debate when we were talking about this show about whether the Tesla uh, is space junk. Uh, what's your What's your opinion on this? Well, I did want to add a little bit to our discussion of what's up there. And, uh, you know, my initial thought was also, you know, you're sending up this car. Why not, say, offer some space to school children who want to set up an experiment? Um, And I recently uh, discovered that apparently um, the Tesla didn't go up alone. Um, It contains a tiny quartz crystal disk that's about the size of a coin. Uh, That's called the ARC 1.2. It's spelled like ARCH, but it's pronounced like ARC. Um, And it's loaded with Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. And it's supposed to, this is a new storage medium that's supposed to last for billions of years. Uh, And the creators of the ARC uh, format are hoping that this and subsequent launches will, uh, of new forms of the ARC, will eventually create a kind of a library of humanity that can be decentralized and resilient no matter what happens on Earth. So it's kind of an interesting throwback to the golden record Uh that was on the Voyagers. Um, But this isn't something that's as well known. It's not as flashy or exciting as this kind of strangely random cherry red Tesla that's now (laughs) out there orbiting with all the other kind of cosmic celestial bodies. With the dummy astronaut in the driver's seat. Exactly, with his arm <laughs> jauntily up on the on the side of the on the window. <laughs> now you mentioned the golden record. Remind our listeners of this. These were uh, sounds and languages that uh, Carl Sagan and others helped put together uh, for the Voyager One. Mm-hmm. Carl Sagan, uh, the, the uh, well-known astronomer and science popularizer, along with Androyan and others, uh, undertook this really monumental project to put together sounds that would represent all of humanity to be placed on these Voyager spacecraft that were going out into the solar system and eventually to move, hopefully beyond, beyond the solar system. And they, it, this was a really painstaking, long task of trying to collect exactly the right piece of ancient Chinese music and you know, the sounds of... Uh, of of children laughing and mothers scolding and and hello in all the different languages and uh, I believe Androyan even recorded the sounds of her heartbeats to um, to you know, preserve the sound of a woman's heart falling in love I and mean, all kinds of interesting sounds and music to be representative of the human species as a whole so it was a collaborative project um, very representative and it was all etched on this in this golden record that was placed on the spacecraft in hopes that should um, alien intelligence someday find this spacecraft and be able to access this record that perhaps that can be a way of waving and saying, hi, we're here. We exist. Know about us. What do you think those alien beings would think of this uh, flashy sports car if they see it one day? <laughs> 
I have no idea. I wonder if they would try to communicate with that mannequin. Um, but if they're not humanoid um, looking, um, they might at least find this crystal disc and find mm. some some of Isaac Asimov's work. Uh, and uh, But who knows? They might look at that little coin-shaped object and have no idea what it is or what a car would be or what... what uh, there's no reason, though, why uh, you know an alien intelligence would have would be puzzled by a roadster more so than they would be by the Voyager. Really, if you think about it, if you uh, assume that they are nothing like us, um, this could be just as unusual and strange and stupefying as any other object that one one could find in space. Now, Lisa Ruth, I had asked uh, um, you if you thought this car would be considered space junk. Maybe we back up and you define for us what exactly space debris, space junk is. Sure. So this is also puzzling because space junk is is currently defined by most uh, state uh, uh, and international organizations as any object that's designed for use in outer space that no longer serves a useful purpose. And that can be objects that remain in space or objects that are falling back to Earth through the atmosphere. So this roadster is also kind of puzzling and historic in that it wasn't designed for use in space. It was designed for use on Earth. And yet here it is in space doing something, right? It's serving a uh, an advertising purpose for Elon Musk's companies, plural. Um, it's uh, especially for a company that doesn't really advertise much, uh, SpaceX. Um, it's... You know, it's providing a kind of an interesting public outreach tool. So one could argue that it's not really it's serving a, a useful purpose, but it's not something that was designed for use in outer space. So it's kind of a tricky thing whether or not this fits into the category of space junk as currently defined, again, by most uh, state and international organizations. Uh, when we were talking about uh, space debris or space junk, so when we think about old satellites or uh, pieces of rockets uh, that um, are, are orbiting in space, those are things that are up there now that could be considered space junk? Right. So uh, space junk typically you know, can be objects from satellites that have run out of fuel to maneuver or no longer being uh, able to communicate with the ground. It can be um, empty pieces of rockets um, that are up there. So Marina mentioned that reuse these reusable rockets are, are, are making spaceflight cheaper, but they're also reducing to some extent the amount of debris in low Earth orbit. So oftentimes the most dangerous pieces of space debris were these pieces of rockets that still had fuel in them that could explode and create more debris. Um, but it also can be small objects like uh, flecks of paint shed from operating spacecraft or from rocket launches, uh, loose screws, um, just things that have been shed over the course of normal operations of, of operating spacecraft. So we're posing this question whether uh, the Tesla convertible uh, floating around up there is considered space junk. But I wanted to also ask you about another recently launched object. Uh, if people haven't heard about this, it's called the Humanity Star. What can you tell us about that, Lisa Ruth? Goodness, the Humanity Star launched just a few, like a week or so before uh, the Falcon Heavy launched, and it was launched by uh, by Rocket Lab, another private startup that probably many listeners haven't heard of because SpaceX seems to be the one that the one that has the name recognition. Um, but it's cornering the market for uh, smaller payloads, the nanosats, small commercial satellites. Um, and their latest launch, they they uh, launched a few uh, commercial payloads, but <clears throat> secretly piggybacking alongside it was this kind of passion project by that was designed by uh, Peter Beck, the CEO of Rocket Lab. And this it was this geodesic sphere about three feet in diameter, uh, made of carbon fiber, extremely shiny, um, and it was launched in space purely into space purely to be seen from the ground 
by anyone around the world with the naked eye. And Peter Beck called this the humanity star um, because he saw it as an opportunity to uh, sow unity um, between people in a moment of, of high discord around the planet that perhaps those looking up into the sky and seeing this small winking object from from outer space might might feel a sense of cosmic wonder, but also uh, feel a sense of, of camaraderie with people around the Earth who might be seeing the same sight. Can't we get that from the stars and planets that we can see uh, now without having this uh, strange satellite that reflects the sun's light <laughs> back towards arguably, us? <laughs> arguably, yes, except that what, what's, what, makes, what makes humanity star different is that it is artificial, right? It's something that can also show off the ingenuity of of human humankind, and but also, of course, I would argue that you know the uh, the success of of of, uh, of 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 our capitalist system, right? We have this uh, these 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 um, uh, entrepreneurs putting up, as Marina mentioned again, this kind of unprecedented moment where these entrepreneurs are doing the work that used to only be able to be done by governments that had the resources and the capital to. To, to do this kind of work. So Peter Beck put up this object, of course, eclipsed uh, by the cherry red Tesla uh, soon after, but also um, spurred its own controversy. So uh, he kind of, uh, in many ways, uh, the Rocket, Rocket Lab portrays this as a piece of space art. But astronomers in particular have spoken of it instead of, as, as space graffiti, as something shiny and... Um, perhaps aberrant that could that 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 might suggest that that would be misleading if they're trying to observe other objects again like you mentioned naturally occurring objects stars planets instead it could be something that gets in the way of those kinds of observations and that's something that astronomers uh, have been concerned about since the very beginning of uh, of spaceflight I wanted to go back to Marina Corrin, science reporter at The Atlantic. Uh, we were just talking about the Humanity Star, this uh, satellite uh, with this uh, created to uh, reflect the sun's light uh, and so people can see it uh, from Earth. Uh, Marina, I guess the question I have is um, how, when people are able, who have the money and the resources to, to put these things up in space, who's regulating it? How is he able to, to, to launch this up there? Um, and you know, does that raise uh, greater questions uh, for the future of what can exactly go up there and, and who's watching? That's a very good question. And I think that um, increased regulation is going to come with time. Like the more we have um, people like Rocket Lab or companies like Rocket Lab and SpaceX launching um, unusual payloads into space, I think maybe some um, politicians who are uh, fine with it now, I mean, there are some regulations in place about what you can put into space, but I mean, you can, a humanity star is not that different from a satellite and those can easily go up. I think when the cadence of these types of launches uh, increases, then you might start to see some rumbling about um, increased regulation. And that always happens when the technology outpaces what uh, what the law says. And um, one thought I, I, I loved that Lisa called the, uh, the humanity star space graffiti, or that pointed out that others have called it space graffiti. Um, and it, it is different that in that from, you know, from the moon, from the stars, from the planets, it's different because it's artificial. But I would say that if you're looking for an artificial piece of something, you know, a sign of human engineering ingenuity in the night sky, you can still look out for the International Space Station, which might be just a little bit brighter than the humanity star. Good point, Marina. And uh, Dr. Lisa Ruth Rand, again, uh, I guess if people don't like the humanity star, the good news is it'll be gone in about six months? Yes, it's supposed to be up for <laughs> nine months total. Okay. 
Uh, and it will then re-enter the atmosphere, and it shouldn't survive. It's pretty small. And uh, Marina is right that that the International Space Station. I'm actually a big fan of going and, and watching the station. It's about the size of a football field, as opposed to the three meter, three foot uh, in diameter Humanity Star. So NASA actually has a website called Spot the Station, where you can sign up with your uh, zip code, and it will send you alerts either on email or on text when the station is passing overhead. So whenever it passes over Madison, Wisconsin, I always like to go outside on a clear night and look up and think not only, wow, that's something that humans made, but also, wow, there's people up there, which is an <laughs> added thrill of being able to wave at the astronauts as they pass overhead. So it is really an incredible experience. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to thank uh, Marina Corrin again, science reporter at The Atlantic. We'll tweet out some of the links to her stories about uh, Elon Musk, SpaceX, and also the Humanity Star. Marina, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Lisa Ruth Rand is a postdoctoral fellow at University of Wisconsin-Madison. She studies the history of space debris. She's going to stick around as we learn more about uh, the stuff humans have left behind. We're also going to talk to an engineer with United Technologies about the stuff they're creating to aid the next generation of space flight. Now, have you thought about all the space debris above Earth? What are the consequences of having that stuff floating around in space? You can join the conversation, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Major Tom to ground control. I'm stepping through the door. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about the future of space exploration. One of the consequences of humans' interest in space is the amount of space debris or space junk floating around, like old satellites to spent rockets to other artificial fragments. NASA says more than 500,000 pieces of this stuff is being tracked as it orbits the Earth. But what about the space junk that's too small to track? And what kind of damage can this debris cause on pricey satellites or the International Space Station? To help answer those questions and more from the studios of Wisconsin Public Radio in Madison, Dr. Lisa Ruth Rand, a postdoctoral fellow at University of Wisconsin-Madison, studying the history of space debris, historian of science, technology, and the environment. Uh, Lisa Ruth, we were talking a little bit about uh, what exactly is space debris or space junk. But when we talk about what exactly is orbiting around the Earth, uh, tell us about the other things we'd find up there besides satellites, besides the International Space Station. So we'd find any number of things, anything that, uh, that's been used to send up a satellite um, uh, or to send up human spacecraft. So that can range from from pieces of rockets, from things shed, uh, from those rockets, of, from satellites. Of, uh, a lot of times um, the debris that can be the most dangerous, the debris that comes into uh, close proximity of the International Space Station, is debris left over from collisions and explosions. So those can be intentional or unintentional. In 2007, uh, the Chinese space program sent up a projectile to bring down one of its own defunct weather satellites. And unfortunately, that didn't go as well as they'd hoped. And it created a plume of of hundreds of thousands of smaller pieces of debris that continue to circle the planet. Um, And then again, in 2009, uh, two satellites, one functioning, one not, collided over Siberia and created two new plumes of debris. So these on-orbit accidents can create small pieces of debris that nonetheless can be extremely dangerous to functioning spacecraft um, because many of them at low Earth orbits are traveling at speeds of up to seven to eight kilometers per second. 
So that's very, very fast. And there's an analogy that NASA uses that a piece of debris smaller than half an inch around or so traveling at that high of speed would hit as hard as a bowling ball moving at 300 miles per hour. So as you can imagine, that that packs quite a punch. You mentioned low Earth orbit. Talk to us about the the multiple levels uh, in Earth's orbit. Uh, We have a picture on our website from NASA that shows a lot of the the things up there um, that are just circling uh, above Earth. And I guess that's low Earth orbit. But talk about the different levels and how valuable that real estate is, so to speak, uh, as you go further up. Sure. So low Earth orbit is anything under about 2,000 kilometers. Um, And it's one of the most heavily trafficked um, uh, uh, regions of orbit. Um, it's also one of the yeah one of the most crowded of, with space debris. Um, but there's also different regions of orbit. There's Middle Earth orbit, which is where our GPS satellites currently uh, exist, and then there's an even higher orbit, uh, one that some listeners may have heard of. It's called geostationary orbit or geo, and it's uh, at about thirty five thousand seven hundred kilometers above the surface of the Earth, um, and objects in that orbit. Uh, um, orbit the Earth at the same speed that the Earth turns. So objects in that orbit appear fixed above a point on the ground. So it's a very valuable orbit, particularly for communication satellites, because there's no chance of outage. Um, wherever you, you know, at any point in time, any point of the day or night, that satellite will be overhead. So that said, there's only 360 degrees of it. So it's limited. It's not quite like low Earth orbit, where things are constantly moving at that very, you know, fast speed uh, and circling the Earth and going behind the Earth. This is uh, a very, very valuable orbit that's that's also rapidly filling. You mentioned uh, the possibility of collisions up there. And I'm curious, with the International Space Station, how do they avoid uh, being hit by some of that debris? So luckily, we have a pretty good tracking system in place from the ground and from space, uh, that there are sensors that are deployed by the Department of Defense in particular that uh, track all objects in outer space that are above a certain size. So um, objects larger than 10 centimeters can be tracked by our space surveillance network. Um, And the NASA Orbital Debris Program Office estimates that there are some 500,000 particles between one in 10 centimeters in diameter, and they're, but they're probably over 100 million or so particles smaller than one centimeter. Um, and currently, uh, there's a new sensor to replace what was then what was once called the space fence, which was not really a real fence, but a, a, a kind of a dragnet of radars in the American Southwest that was used to try to pick up on on objects that are that were passing overhead. The new space fence is supposed to be able to uh, using a different kind of radar to pick up even smaller objects. So we're trying to keep a keep, you know get a good sense of what's up there, where it's moving, when, and but there also has to be, of course, probability uh, calculations to determine how close an object might get to, say, the International Space Station or to a space telescope to make sure that uh, that uh, that those in charge can determine whether or not the astronauts need to take shelter, whether a satellite needs to be moved a little bit to avoid a collision. Um, that happened actually in 2012 with the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope. Um, there was a high probability that a piece of uh, space debris would come into contact with that telescope. So its operators took the highly risky chance of basically lighting up its um, its thrusters and moving it a little forward in its orbit to make sure it would be protected. That you know they were they were more concerned about it colliding with that debris than blowing the whole works by mm-hmm. lighting something up that had been frozen for a long time. So. Um, there's ways of both keeping an eye on what's up there and also predicting where those objects might be at any point in time. 
This is where we live. On the phone with me, Dr. Lisa Ruth Rand, as we talk about uh, space debris or space junk up there uh, orbiting Earth, including uh, many satellites. Uh, Also, we know the International Space Station is up there as well. Is this something that you've thought about? Uh, uh, Do you wonder about the consequences of humans' interest in space and and what's left up there? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I have to ask you, um, we were talking about uh, possibility of collisions. You know, that was part of the plot of that movie, Gravity, and and the Kessler syndrome, I understand. So this uh, chain reaction of one collision with space junk causing another collision and another after that. Is that a realistic fear? Is it overblown? So gravity... Gravity itself is overblown. <laughs> uh, what's what's shown in that movie is is pretty much physically impossible. That over the course of minutes, our entire satellite infrastructure would be destroyed by by this cascading collision known as as the Kessler syndrome. That said, um, it's not it's not impossible that 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 these cascading collisions will begin uh, in the in the future. Um, you know the Kessler, Donald Kessler, who's for whom Kessler syndrome is named, was a researcher at NASA who who predicted that these might start. Uh, he made the prediction a publication in 1978, I believe, late 70s, um, and um, presumed that these collisions would start by the by the new millennium, and they they did with that uh, 2009 collision between the two, uh, the one functioning and one non-functioning satellite. So. Um, you know, it's what happened in gravity is is pretty much impossible. But um, the eventual outcome of, of of satellites having these domino effect collisions is not impossible. It would just take place over a much um, longer time period, um, and would not be as catastrophic. And honestly, one of the biggest differences I think with that movie and what would happen in real life is that the biggest concern wouldn't be threatening, you know, the lives and bodies of these uncommonly beautiful astronauts, <laughs> but um, but threatening these uh, just a plethora, really a plurality of technological practices on the ground that you and I engage in every single day but don't realize are connected to satellites. Uh, again, uh, we're talking about space debris with Lisa Ruth Rand. I wanted to bring into the conversation now uh, Gary Adamson. He's a principal engineer with space systems with UTC Aerospace Systems. That's United Technologies Corporation. Gary, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. So, so tell us what UTC, we know that NASA and private companies are spending billions on this technology used in space. What kinds of things is UTC building? And when you talk, when we think about space debris, um, how you take that into account when you're designing certain uh, technology that NASA will be using up there. Okay. Yeah, so uh, we're at UTC Aerospace Systems, and we, we make environmental control and uh, life support systems for astronauts in uh, harsh environments that uh, we need to protect them from the danger of space. So uh, like a spacesuit? Like a spacesuit, exactly. And also the International Space Station I've been talking about. So we outfit all the heating ventilation equipment, you know, the fan flows and uh, oxygen generation uh, but like you said, a space suit is a very visible, you know, like a one-person spacecraft. And, uh, you know, so we have astronauts out there. And, uh, yeah, we're very concerned about the, uh, the, the debris in the environment that we have to live in. Uh, when we talk about uh, this and all the things that are, that are floating up, up around there, tell us about some of the technology um, on the the ISS that, while it's, uh, I guess, considered more internal, so the, the, the plumbing, so to speak, uh, but in terms of if there were a collision, like how they would be able to uh, deal with that with the right. technology you're creating. 
Yes. Yeah, so, so, right. So we have designs over time. We, we've looked at uh, ways to protect against these micrometeors. And over, you know, the last many decades since the 60s, there's been, these been existing from naturally occurring meteors. And uh, these are very small particles, though. So we, we can design for things up to, you know, like one centimeter or a millimeter in size. Uh, think of like a poppy seed or, or up to a blueberry, maybe. But, uh, you know, th- those things going at 17,000 miles an hour are very difficult to to deflect or stop. So we we can we can protect. So the space station has you know hundreds of bumpers on them, or uh, you know protection for cooling tubes, for batteries, for electronic equipment, things like that. And there are safe zones for the astronauts to go into. So as as uh, Lisa was mentioning, there's a tracking system. There's thousands of debris, and they can track up to uh, you know ten centimeters, which is roughly like an orange size or a softball. Um, so we know where those are. We we can actually maneuver. So we get a warning, and you can actually you, you can move the space station orbit to avoid these objects. And we can design for very small objects. The, the danger, though, is in between the one centimeter and the ten centimeter objects. We cannot see them, and we cannot design to protect. So there's a probability. We need to do a probability risk assessment. And, you know, what is the probability we may have a, a puncture in a space suit or a space station? I understand UTC is also working with NASA on technology for a crewed mission to Mars. What can you tell us about that? Yes, right. So as we're trying to live longer in space, expand the, you know, expand the human's presence in space, we need to live there longer. So we're designing a, the Orion space vehicle right now that will be launched out, you know, towards the moon and beyond uh, that will then hook up with a larger um, transit vehicle that we will, uh, you know, have astronauts and a crew of four to eight people. And that's what you would go in a ship, a fairly large, similar to space station kind of a, of a voyage. Um, to, get to prepare for that, though, we're, we're using the space station in low Earth orbit as a test bed or to experiment so we know that these systems will survive the trip to Mars. But this space debris is is, is accumulating over time. It, the prob- it's getting you know more and more of it. So it is becoming more of a a risk. And as we spend longer time in space, there's more of a chance that you're going to get hit. So the probability is actually increasing. Now we're talking about space debris in this larger context of the future of space flight and, and space exploration. You know, I'm curious uh, if you watch the Falcon Heavy launch, and what do you think mm-hmm. about the future? Um, is this something that's front and center for most Americans? Are they thinking about what's happening up there? I, I think that this does make it front and center. And then you know, little things like the Tesla. You know, it made me think a little more about you know space junk and you know what we actually launch in space, and you know. Yeah, he obviously was doing a test launch. So, but but the primary effect here is he's lowering the cost, as you mentioned, of access to space. And so we're going to be able to have better observation of Earth's, you know, science and uh, communications, and then also you know have more human action in space. And we look at you know things like space tourism or space hotels in low Earth orbit. Um, and again, these would be you know at risk with if we you know don't get control of uh, of the actual debris. I want to go back to, to Lisa Ruth. Uh, we were hearing Gary talk about the dangers of more and more of this debris. Uh, possible ideas to clean it up. You mentioned uh, shooting it down is not always a good thing. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, that the act of taking down that satellite, uh, you know, on the surface, the purpose was to bring down a dead satellite, to do something good to clean up after yourself. But it was also 
serving an additional purpose of kind of showing those around the world that China had the ability to bring down a satellite, right? That's, that's a very uh, powerful skill to be able to show uh, from, a, from a national defense standpoint. And shortly after, a few months after, the United States did the same with one of its own satellites to show China that we could do it as well. Again, it was it was a it was a failing satellite. It was a satellite that was uh, that was behaving erratically, um, and we took it down a little more cleanly than the Chinese did. Um, but it was it served a dual purpose to bring down the satellite, but also to show that we have the ability to take down your satellite. Now, um, uh, that kind of dual purpose, that um, dual meaning, is something that also complicates any possibility of bringing down debris because. Uh, by international treaty, the the uh, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 declares outer space as the domain of all humankind. And while uh, space itself can't be owned or claimed by any person or state, um, we can own things transiting through it. And any action against another state's spacecraft could be seen as an act of war. We don't want to do that. So while there are multiple interesting um ideas for how to bring down or remediate remediate space debris, they're all very, very legally tricky. But they're also really interesting. Um, Like, for instance, NASA is developing a kind of of, uh, debris cleaning mechanism that's based on how geckos' feet can grasp objects. Um, There's one company that's basing a a removal model on ancient Japanese fishing net technology. Uh, The Swiss are attempting, are going to hopefully soon, over the next two years, be launching the, they call it the Clean Space One spacecraft that is going to grapple a, uh, a nanosatellite and bring it through the atmosphere uh, to where it will be destroyed. So there's lots of interesting um, new models for how, how to bring back space debris ourselves rather than waiting for the atmosphere to clean it up for us. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to thank Gary Adamson again, Principal Engineer, Space Systems for UTC Aerospace Systems. Thanks for coming in to tell us about some of the, the work that you and your team are doing. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having us. Now, coming up, billions are being spent on technology to send humans to the moon and beyond. But what's the safest way to do that to protect not only the people, but the environments we have yet to discover? NASA's former planetary protection officer joins us, and we want to hear from you. If you had the chance to travel in space, would you take the opportunity? Join the conversation, This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about the future of space exploration. But what happens if we leave stuff from Earth on another planet, particularly planets we think may be capable of supporting life? Joining our discussion right now is Dr. John Rummel, senior scientist at the uh, SETI Institute, former planetary protection officer for NASA and a former scientist for astrobiology at NASA. Dr. Rummel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I understand, again, you used to be the NASA's planetary protection officer. The Washington Post called this job the, quote, greatest job title ever conceived. Tell us about the idea behind planetary protection. Well, it's funny. The idea behind planetary protection includes it being described by popular science as the worst job in the world. So we go either way, but the idea is to keep microbial contamination from going from one world to the next 
which in the case of what we call forward contamination, taking things to Mars and places like that, uh, could confound our ability to discover life on Mars or to protect that life if we did did discover it. Uh, we also worry about things coming back, the so-called Andromeda strain, uh, although that was an army project in the movie. Uh, it is one of those things that uh, taxpayers have a right to have sample return missions done safely, uh, and I think that that's the kind of investment you want to make. So the planetary protection officer basically puts up a hand and says no in both directions. We've been talking about the role of, of commercial companies in space flight and the future of space exploration. Uh, what are your concerns as we move forward in this way in terms of, of taking into account these very important questions and, and consequences of our actions? Well, I, I think that the regulatory environment's got to include the consideration of microbial contamination both ways. And as long as it does that, I don't have many concerns. Uh, of course, if you want to take tourists to Mars, you don't want them to get the Mars flu and not be able to come home. So that's always a concern uh, on the seriously commercial side. And of course, if we're going to colonize Mars, for example, although I think Connecticut's nicer than Mars, um, you, Thank would you. <laughs> find, <laughs> you would find that uh, you know taking Earth microbes there where they could actually uh, be the confounding element that keeps you from using Mars resources, et cetera. Uh, isn't a good idea either. So we try to go ahead and have some rules. The rules are uh, both government and uh, private rules under the Outer Space Treaty, Article 6. Um, so we, you know, are seeing how we're going to do it. And the U.S. government is uh, a little slow to react on this, but it's working on it. Uh, earlier, we were talking about Elon Musk Tesla that's now uh, floating around uh, towards the asteroid belt. Uh, some popular press commenta- commentators were complaining that this car wasn't de- uh, decontaminated. Is that really a concern? It is a concern if one were to worry about it hitting Mars. Um, actually, SpaceX provided enough data to prove to the FAA that it was very unlikely to hit Mars in the future. Of course, all the aliens on Mars are going, oh, I wanted a Porsche. But anyway, it's one of those things. The, uh, we take it very seriously, and it was part of the licensing process uh, whereby FAA consults with NASA on launches of that sort. I wanted to go back to uh, Dr. Lisa Ruth Ran, who joins us from Wisconsin Public Radio Studios. Uh, we're talking about uh, the role of planetary protection. You know, when you look at the, the history, I'm just curious uh, what your thoughts are moving forward, Lisa. Um, well, uh, I think that uh, you know Dr. Rummel has a has a really good perspective on this as someone who's been responsible for again both protecting other planets from our own uh, microbes and protecting ourselves from it. I, I do also want to add, in addition to Andromeda strain, that uh, it's not necessarily widely known, but uh, there's a brief moment in Night of the Living Dead, this the very first kind of germinal zombie movie, that the zombie contagion is started by a probe that's returned from Venus a human-made probe that crash lands and, and causes the dead to reanimate. So this kind of anxiety has been in popular culture uh, for for a while now. Um, but as far as, as the Tesla goes, um, you know, it, it does seem unlikely that, that it would crash land and, and carry microbes to, um, to Mars or to another celestial body. But uh, I agree with Dr. Rummel that the current regulatory framework uh, probably isn't as ex- as expansive as it needs to be to cover this uh, new world of, of private uh, uh, space industry, particularly given 
that um, these individual CEOs like Elon Musk, um, like uh, like Beck from um, uh, from uh, Rocket Lab, um, Peter Beck, that there's uh, that, that there needs to be also more oversight. That, that the the lack of the lack of bureaucracy, relative lack of bureaucracy, does kind of change the game in terms of what goes up, and uh, how careful how carefully vetted those those spacecraft are. So who uh, takes that first step in, in strengthening those regulatory procedures? Uh, I'll go back to uh, Dr. John Rummel. Yeah, I, I actually think that all the commercial firms that I know of are interested in regulatory framework that they can depend on. And so making sure that that regulatory framework is not actually likely to be fractured by new ideas coming up that are actually very old ideas uh, is a responsible thing that can be done. And the National Space Council will discuss this tomorrow down at the Kennedy Space Center. Um, I think that it's important that the idea that you can you know, have a clean entry into Mars and do that at the same time that somebody else is trying to look for life there, you've got to be very careful about misconstruing life from Florida as life on Mars. And uh, that could stop actually regular colonization or regular tourist visits, et cetera, uh, because you don't want to mix uh, humans and Mars life without knowing about it. So, uh, Dr. Rummel, so uh, what you're saying, is it really possible to have a mission to Mars that wouldn't violate this principle of planetary protection? Well, we actually do that with the robotic missions all the time. Uh, and all of the robotic missions that have flown since uh, we've been going to Mars, uh, at least by the U.S., have fully complied with guidelines that are published by the Committee on Space Research, which is a not-for-profit uh, non-governmental organization that is under the International Council for Science. Um, essentially, we try to keep track of what would be considered harmful contamination under Article 9 of the Space Treaty, although the idea pre-existed the Space Treaty. We'll have to leave it there, but hopefully we've sparked uh, our listeners' interest in, in uh, what's happening in uh, the future of space exploration. I want to thank Dr. John Rummel, senior scientist and also uh, former planetary protection officer for NASA. Dr. Rummel, thank you so much. My pleasure. Also, Lisa Ruth Rand, postdoctoral fellow at University of Wisconsin-Madison, a historian of science, technology, and the environment. Thank you, Lisa Ruth. Thank you very much. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.